Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here ends the reading. Well, good afternoon and uh, welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm one of the leaders here and um, I'm going to be walking you through this last habit of rest. Um, we're in a series called The Habits of Grace, as Gav mentioned before, and uh, these are a bunch of I guess, spiritual disciplines that people who follow Jesus have maintained in church history. They're biblical and they help us grow week, and week, and week on week and month on month and year after year. And uh, we're in the last one in this series, which is on rest. And uh, last week we looked at having a day of rest. Did anyone try that this week and have a go at it? Yeah, a few people. Great to see. It's been good to hear. I don't mean to flex on y'all, but I probably had, I probably had a 10 out of 10 day of rest yesterday. It was, it was almost an 11 out of 10. We started the day, my wife made pancakes for everyone. Just if you weren't here last week, I made breakfast last week, so it was, it's not just on her. Then um, we headed to the, oh, we got up early, sorry, we had time in the Word and in prayer, then we had breakfast together, um, got ready for the kids, headed out to the beach for most of the day, came back, the kids got to watch a movie, we got to go for a run, and then we went out, we got some food, some takeaway, and went down to Mort Bay Park as the sun was setting, and just whiled away the time there, partly because we were trying to get them to bed late, because it's daylight savings today, which if you're a parent, you know is a disaster. Um, but look, end to end, it was a great day. And so again, I'd encourage you as we go over these three weeks to be working on practical ways of implementing biblical rest. It's worth saying, even right at this point in the series, because we've covered four of the habits so far, nearly all four, it's worth saying that insight is not the same as change. So just because you know what is wrong and why it's wrong doesn't mean that anything's going to be different. And so I'd encourage you as we come to the end of this time, to reflect on what we've looked at in Scripture and to really change. If every time someone asks you, how's your, how's your Bible reading and prayer going? You're like, same as, you know, the last decade. It's time to do something. If every time everyone asks you, how are you going? You're always busy, tired. It's time to do something. If everyone's asking you, how's church going? You're like, oh, I'm kind of there, I'm kind of not. It's time to do something, right? It's time to share Jesus, all these things. I'd encourage you to reflect in your missional communities and to start thinking about practical ways that you might change. And for that reason, this second week on rest is looking at a biblical understanding of work. Because if you don't have a biblical understanding of work, it's going to be very difficult to rest. In fact, it's probably going to knock everything else out of order in your life anyway. And I don't know about you, but the way I came to understand work was probably over many years without anyone saying anything expressly to me about what I should think about work. I formed a view of it. It started in year eight when I entered the workforce as a paper boy, and, uh, and I soon discovered that, um, that it, because it was a, a, a low management kind of you know, industry, that what I could do is just deliver most of the papers and then help the environment by using them as compost, the rest of the pile, as compost in the sort of local bush area. 
And so that, was my, that wasn't a great start to the workforce, but I soon moved on from uh, delivering papers to working my first sort of tax file number job, which was a, uh, a, a pretty, pretty flash establishment called Domino's Pizza, you might know it. And, uh, and like many kids starting your first sort of fast food job, I started enthusiastically. But if you had enthusiasm over time, it sort of, you know, waned a little bit over time. Then I moved to Baker's Delight, uh, which was, a, I think, a step forward from Domino's. Then I stepped back to Red Rooster, which was probably a rung below uh, Domino's. But then after that in uni, I, uh, I moved into retail. And if you've worked in part-time retail, at least, you'll know that one of the skills you need to develop is how not to perish from boredom. Um, and, uh, and so that was most of my time there. And then I, and then I hit the, we would probably call the, the holy land of jobs for part-time in uni, which was aftercare. The pay was good. The kids are actually pretty fun. It was a pretty good spot to sort of uh, get, a, get a, a, a short income as I finished my degree. But I think over that time, I developed a view of work, which was basically this. Work is this thing that you have to do in life that if you really could avoid it, you would. Um, it's something that all of us have to do. You have to eat. You have to work. But really, if we could get out of work, we would. Now, that may not be your view, but I think for many of us it is. And I want to put to you that that's not actually a biblical view of work. That actually if we see what the Bible has to say about work, it's much richer than that. And it also explains the frustrations and the joys that can be associated with work. And so my prayer is that as we open God's Word this afternoon, we'd see what place we have in God's creation and what place work has in human flourishing. So I'm going to pray for us that that, that would be the case. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would open our eyes and hearts by your Holy Spirit to see what we can't see on our own, to see your wise word to us. We pray that you'd give us strength to not only hear your word, but to obey, knowing that in ourselves we can do nothing. We are dependent entirely on you, and so we ask that you would change our hearts and minds. We pray that we'd understand what your will for our lives is, how it is that you call us to work and to rest, and that you would lead us to witness to you and to live as ambassadors for you in this world. We pray all of this for your glory. Amen. Well, the first part of the Bible story is creation, the origin of everything. And in Genesis 1, the passage that Shamian read out for us before, um, we saw that there was a very unique place that humankind has in all of creation. Look at what it says in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So from this passage, we get something very important. Man and woman are made co-equal, both made with dignity because there is nothing else in all creation over which God says, you are made in my image. Not over the birds, not over the whales, not over anything else in creation does God say, you're made in my image. But he takes man and woman and he says, you are made in my image. So he sets them apart from creation. But then he gives them a mission. He says to them, look, you're not just here to fluff about, you've got a job to do. Fill the earth and subdue it. So the plan from the very start of the Bible 
is that the whole earth would be filled with worshippers of God who are made in His image. That's the plan. And that is still the plan. Through Jesus, God is going to restore all things. He's not going to hit flush on earth and go and start a new creation somewhere else. He's going to redeem, buy back His creation. And so He's going to fulfill that plan. But you might be thinking, well, look, if God is so powerful, if God made everything, why did He leave humans to finish the job? What's the point? You can think of it a little bit like this. If you've seen, if you've seen the, if you've ever played Lego with kids, you may have, you may not have. If you've seen the Lego movie, you might understand this dynamic. Oftentimes, when you're playing Lego with kids, they're a little bit slow on the uptake. And you often need to help them a bit. And sometimes they get in the way a bit. You need them to just to back off so you can finish it. But when you're, when you're in your right mind as an actual grown-up, what, what you want to do is to see them finish it. Because it's a joy. When they actually get the job done, it's, it's an amazing feeling for them. This is the very same project that God gives to humankind. He says, I'm not going to finish it off. This is for you. You fill the earth and subdue it. And he gives man and woman this charge, the beginning of family, and says, through this, you are going to fill the earth and subdue it. And because of that, it means that all work has dignity. It means that work is actually good. To subdue the earth means to cultivate it. It means reorganizing creation in order to make something for our use or our enjoyment. That means building, writing, drawing, painting, making music, decorating, gardening, tilling, reaping, all these things are good. God says, subdue the earth. And so the very first thing that happens after Genesis 1 is humans start building and organizing towns and cities and communities and so on. This is good. It also means that filling the earth has dignity. That means according to Scripture, parenting is just as dignified as vocational work that it also is good. Now, oftentimes, our culture doesn't have a lot to say about that. We really hold up vocational work and hold it as being crucial to sort of getting things done. But oftentimes, the idea of parenting is kind of, is like a secondary thing. If you're a stay-at-home parent, you, may, you might have found that, that point in the conversation when someone asks what you do during the week and you let them know that you're a stay-at-home full-time parent and it feels like you kind of got second prize at the fair. But here... God is saying that there is one project that he has given to humankind, fill the earth and subdue it. And those two parts are equal in dignity. And so next time, if you feel a bit sheepish about saying you're a stay-at-home parent, why don't you try saying this instead from Genesis 1. If anyone says what you're doing during the week, just say, I'm engaging in the work of cultivating the only newly originating life in the universe made in the image of God. <laughs> what have you done lately? Right? You know, that's... That's a way to kick off a conversation. But really, I mean, I say that by way of kind of a side point as we look at Genesis 1 because we're going to focus largely on vocational work because that's the kind of work that we're called to rest from. Last week we saw he says, six days you shall labor and one you shall rest. And so we're going to be focusing on, on subduing the earth on that kind of work. Um, but I didn't want to leave that off to the side. But on that, work therefore from the beginning is good. It's part of human nature. It's part of human flourishing. We were made to work. It's not something just to be avoided. It's good. Tim Keller in his book puts it this way. It says, uh, Work is as much a basic human need as food, beauty, rest, friendship, and prayer. It's not simply medicine, but food for our soul. And this makes sense, doesn't it? We were made to work. That's why unemployment or even underemployment 
can sometimes be so difficult to endure. That's why chronic illness can be so difficult because we're created with a desire to make things and produce things and to cultivate and subdue the earth. And when we can't do that, it is frustrating. That's why solitary confinement in imprisonment is so dehumanizing because you separate someone from other people that they're made to relate with and be in relationship with and you separate them from the ability to work and produce. That's why a productive day feels so good and a lazy day spent procrastinating makes you just feel off. We were made to produce and create things that are useful and that are beautiful and that contribute to this grand project of human flourishing, of filling the earth and subduing it for the glory of God. And it's good. I mean, even think about how good it is that you had breakfast this morning. Even just think of the miracle of your breakfast. Let's, even, let's take the most base whatever breakfast you can have. Let's say you so you know, despise life in yourself that you, you had wheat bix for breakfast this morning. <laughs> and the, the basest of all cereals, right? It's just a, it's just a brick. And, uh, but let's, let's take that one for an example then. Let's say you had the simplest of all breakfasts. Even that itself is a miracle. Like think about what happened. If you ate breakfast at a table, somebody designed that table. It may have even been made by hand and was crafted with care by people so that you would be able to sit at it and have breakfast. Presumably you had it in a bowl because you're not a maniac who puts wheat picks on the table and pours milk on them. And somebody, even if it was a mass-produced bowl, at someone at some point thought about the human hands and about flourishing and how to shape a bowl so that you'd be able to eat breakfast out of it. And then you put wheat picks in it, which came from a farm. It's a, they're a real place. They're out there. And, uh, and wheat was kind of churned into a Lego brick and, uh, and put into a box and stacked in there so that you could take it out one by one and put it in a bowl and put milk in it that came from a cow that somebody actually milked. Even if it was a machine, someone was looking after those cows. It was transported by trucks that were produced by, what, thousands of years of human effort and ingenuity. And all of that so that you could have breakfast. Why did you choose wheat bits? <laughs> Even just your breakfast is a miracle. That's human work. It contributes to human flourishing, even in a small way. And so it's good to work. That's why in 2 Thessalonians, we get a warning against being lazy. Look at what it says, 2 Corinthians 3, 11 to 12. And this is Paul, a missionary, writing to a church that he planted in Thessalonica. And he says, For even when we're with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. You see what he did there? And now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. I mean, have you ever thought about the fact that if we didn't have to eat, we really wouldn't have to work? That would be a fundamental break and a barrier between us and creation. But God has created this dependency on creation so that we'd have a relationship with his created world, because we have to eat. So eating and work are fundamentally connected. And it's good to work. We're called to be productive. It's a blessing to be able to do it. And so here he warns against idleness. He says, look, it's not good to be idle. That is to have a stack of time on your hand. It's not helpful. He says here, when you, when you are not busy with productive work, you become busy with other people's business. Isn't that true? Who are the biggest gossips at your work? The people who have the least to do. Even if they should be doing stuff. Because what happens? When you're not busy and productive in things, you just start this. You know, not enough, 
Not enough tap-tap, too much yap-yap. That's, that's what every, workforce, every workplace has got one. But this was, this was written 2,000 years ago. It's still true today, isn't it? We were not made to be idle. We were made to get stuck in and be productive and do some good work. It's part of being a human and contributing to human flourishing. Work is actually good. That's the first point that we get from Genesis 1. Work is good. But then, of course, the follow-up question has to be, if work is so great, like you might be sitting there thinking, I hear all this talk about how wonderful work is. Why is it that week on week, I get a sick feeling in my stomach every Sunday night, or if you're a shift worker, whatever night of the week it is, why is it that when work rolls around, I don't enjoy it? Why is work so hard? If it's meant to be so good, is the Bible just naive? Well, no, just two chapters after the passage we read, we get Genesis 3 and an explanation of why it is that work is so hard. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve reject God's rule and his created order. And they say, you're not in charge, God. We'll decide how we do things. Thank you very much. And everything falls out of orbit. And then we get this. God speaks to Adam and he says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. The relationship between humankind and creation is now under strain. It says the created world is going to resist your rule. You're called to subdue the earth, and now it's going to be hard. It's not going to work with you on it. It's going to work against you. Creation will not submit easily to our rule. Making and producing things will be difficult. And again, your thought might be, well, what has this got to do with modern work? When you, when you read that text there, it sounds very much like it's got rural, agricultural work in mind. And there's a good reason for that. Uh, if, in that if in this text to the original hearers, the Bible wrote something about you know, hitting your KPIs or 360 reviews, don't worry, this will be relevant in a few thousand years' time, would have, been, would have come across a little awkward. What we're dealing with here is archetypes, right? Uh, this, this description of work, of this physical labor, summarizes all work. The idea is that work, subduing creation and whatever work that would be, is going to be difficult. Because even though our work has changed over time, there are still some things that are fundamentally the same. Every type of work that a human does human made in the image of God does, will involve one component physical and one component knowledge. Depending on the type of work, will depend on how much of it is physical and how much of it's knowledge work, but all work has those two things. Think about it like this. Let's take, say, uh, I'll, I'll bring it up on the screen for you. Let's take a manual labor job. Let's say it's 20% knowledge work and 80% the physical labor of getting it done. So it's, there's some knowledge work, you've got to know what you're doing, there are techniques, there are standards, there are protocols, there are all of this that goes with it. But let's say that mo the majority of your day is taken up with actual physical lifting, moving and shifting. That's, that's going to look like that. But let's say you're an, an executive or a C-suite executive or whatever it is, right? Maybe 90% of your work is knowledge work, it's think work, it's strategizing, it's thinking, it's management, it's kind of that, that up there type thinking. And 10% of it, say, is actual physical work. Well, let's say, as in kind of flipping it up, that you're a dentist. 
let's say 50% of that, again, these aren't, you know, legal proportions. I'm just sort of throwing it out there. You get the drift, right? Half of it might be really technical think work, and a lot of it is just the physical labor of dentistry. Now, all of these, all of these jobs will be hard. They'll have unique pressures depending on how much of it is physical and how much of it is knowledge work, but all of it, according to Genesis 3, is going to be hard. If your job is physical labor, one of the challenges is you have to move often towards a foreman or supervisor job in your 40s to 50s because eventually your body's going to give out under labor. And so that's the pressure that many who are working in in a trade actually feel is that pressure to move towards a more managerial role. If you're an executive and most of your work is knowledge work, one of the difficulties is that you can't switch off from it, that you can always be at work. You can always be connected to work. You can always be thinking about work. If you own your own business, you can always be thinking about work. For a dentist, they're cursed both ways. They can always be thinking about work. They also have to move to part-time work somewhere in their 40s because they're hunched over all the time, which makes them more prone to pancreatic cancer and all this stuff. And so they have the troubles of managing the physical toll as well as, don't become a dentist, just as a a short application for the talk. But um, any work you do, the the point I'm trying to make is this. In Genesis 3, it's summarizing all work. And according to Genesis 3, all work is going to be hard because of the fall, because of our breaking relationship with God. He has cursed the ground and work will be hard. It doesn't matter if it's mostly knowledge or physical, whatever it is, it's going to be hard. Work is hard because of the fall. So those are the first two things we learned. Work is good. Work is hard because of the fall. But there's another reason that work is hard. Work is hard because of our personal sin. Sin is when we find our identity not in the fact that we are made in the image of God, that He is our creator and author, but we find our identity in something else. And often the first thing we look to is work. Often we we fuse our identity with work so that who I am is caught up with what I do. Reading a book called The Road to Character by David Brooks, he opens by saying that our culture puts so much of an emphasis on our career resume that we forget about our eulogy resume. And what he means by that is, a lot of people have some really impressive career resumes, and even their own kids don't have much to say about them that's good at their funeral. And it shouldn't be that way. There's an incredible pressure to find your identity in your work. I am what I do. And when that, when that happens, that makes work even harder. Think about it like this. Say you're a doctor, and you're a very good doctor, and you start to get a reputation for being a good doctor. Before long, it can be a temptation not just to think that I'm a good doctor or a good practitioner, but I'm a good doctor, and that kind of makes me a good person. And the fact that I'm a doctor is what makes me sort of significant. And it's also my reason to kind of be a somebody, and maybe even to look, pe- look down on people who are not somebodies, it can, it can fuse with your identity. And if that happens, a couple of things happen. One is that you find it very hard to operate in context where you're not a somebody. So doctor, as someone who's a really good doctor who finds their identity in that work, comes home, and they're just a dad or a mum. And suddenly there's a real strong draw to be at work where you're a somebody, and not to be at home where you're a nobody. You're just another person. Your kids aren't that wowed by your resume, funnily enough. You're just mum or dad. But the other thing is, you become very sensitive to criticism. Because when people criticize your work, they're not just criticizing your work, they're criticizing you. And so you become incredibly sensitive to it. 
See, identity is meant to be upstream from our work. We're not meant to find our identity from what we do, but our work is meant to be an expression of who we are in God. If you understand that you are made in the image of God, that you are a loved child of God, then work is merely an expression of that. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. This is true for you if you're a follower of Jesus. It says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is true. You're a sinner facing the wrath of God, and Jesus stepped in and took the anger of God on your behalf. He was treated as sin, as a sinner, though he was innocent, that you might be set completely free. And now what is most true about you is not that you're a good worker, but that you are loved by God. And that transforms everything. Paul says here, it's the love of Christ that controls us. Not our work schedules, not our need to be needed, not our need to be someone. The thing that controls and compels us is that Christ has died for us he loves us, and now we are called to love like He loves. Our identity is found in Christ, and this changes everything. The thing that's most true and significant about you is not who you are, or where you work, or how much you earn, or how established in your career you are, but the fact that God loves you and poured out the blood of His Son on, for your behalf. And so you are called to live and to work out of this identity. And so this means a couple of things. And the first question to ask is, when it comes to rest in particular, is are you overworking? Are you overworking? Now for some of you, you've got an, you're, you've got an answer straight away. You're like, absolutely. Nobody has to tell me. I know I'm overworking. I can see the symptoms of it. It's like there's a dashboard and everything's on red. Right? I know I'm overworking. But there might be some of you who hear, I'm like, I'm not sure. I feel like I work a lot. I'm not sure it's overworking. You know, I'm just kind of being diligent. Could I urge you to ask two questions of yourself? And this should help answer whether or not you're overworking. First one is this. Are you too tired or distracted to maintain good spiritual habits? If the answer is yes, then you're too busy. If the main thing in life is your relationship with God and you are too busy to do the things that you need to do in order to grow in love with Him and to serve Him day by day, then flat out you're too busy. But the second one might be, are you too tired or distracted to give appropriate time to the relationships God has placed you in? If you're single, do you, do you have enough time to maintain or build healthy friendships with your Christian brothers or sisters? To build healthy friendships with those who don't yet know Him? If you're married, is there enough time for your spouse? If you're married with kids, there's enough time for your spouse and your kids. 
you are too distracted or too tired to give appropriate time to those relationships that God has placed you in, you are too busy. You are overworking. So if you are overworking, there are a couple of things to do. And the first one might be this. You might just need to get better at managing your time. It may just be a case of getting a handle on how to handle time. Knowledge work can be tricky. It can be slippery. You can be on all the time. It might just mean doing some things to, to contain it. I know for me, when I first started in full-time church ministry, I was a school teacher, which had, there were some things that could blow out as a school teacher. There's reports, there's, there's endless stuff that you could be doing. But there was a certain containment in terms of the amount of hours that you could do and the terms. There were some limits on it. When I moved to working in a church full-time, one of the things that was tricky about it was, one, I loved doing it. That's why I wanted to do it. And so that meant that it kind of didn't feel like work in a sense. But it was also the fact that there are endless things that you could be doing. And also the fact that it's, it's largely relational. It's people that you actually love and like and want to serve. And so the problem for me was I was just on all the time. And we would joke about, not ha-ha joke, more like ha-ha weep, about uh, <laughs> Mel would kind of joke about how ministry was my other wife. <laughs> but please stop. Like, you know, that sort of thing. And it, it became apparent to me that I, I needed to get a handle on things. I needed to get a handle on my time because the truth is that time is the currency of love and if you want to love people well, you need to get a handle on your time. And so I'm not an organized person naturally, but I, I needed to learn some things about getting organized so that I could love the people that I really wanted to love. That I'd be there as a husband, as a dad, as a friend, all those things. And look, no one ever gets perfect at it, but I needed to work on it. If work is dominating you, then, then do something. It might just be a matter of getting a handle on your time. There's a book called What's Best Next by Matt Perman, a Christian book on productivity about how to bring all of life under the lordship of Jesus. That might be a great read for you to get stuck into. But if that's too long for you and you're too busy, of course, right? Here's one thing you could do each week that I think if you did this for an hour a week, it would revolutionize your week. On this slide here, I've, just got, I've tried to slim this down. So I've been using something like this over years. I've tried to slim it down to its smallest possible version. Set a timer for an hour and don't go over it because if you blow out on the first week, you'll be like, oh, I don't have five hours to do that thing again. I'm not going to do it. So set a timer an hour and just put the, that verse up there. When Jesus was asked to summarize the Bible, he summarized it in that amount. You've got time to read that at least, surely, right? Um, where he says, look, this is, you want to summarize the whole Bible? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. And then put the titles in order because of that, love for God. And think back over your last week and think, how have I grown in my love for God over this week? How are my spiritual habits going? Church community, stewardship, gospel fluency, daily Bible reading and prayer, rest, are they all just completely out of it? And if they are, make those the first things you put in. Reading books, listening to sermons, whatever it is that you need to do to grow in your love for God. And put those things in first. Write down what you want to change there. The second one is love for your neighbor. What are the relationships that God has put you in? Friendships, spouse, family, any of those things. The lost, the needy. And put in there what you want to do this week. And then the next thing, and this is the key. This is what I've found over time is the key to it. Then review your calendar. Look at what's actually happening during the week. If you already realize it's, it's blown out already, you're going to need to start pulling some things out. But put the things that matter most in first. I've realized that a, a, oh, how do I say this again? That a, a goal without a plan is just a wish. 
and, and what you'll do is you'll wish that this week will be different to last week, but unless you put it in there, nothing will change. And so I'd encourage you at this point in it, as you've prayed through things, as you've centered yourself, then to put those things in place that really should be of first importance and then get to work. Look at your work schedule and think, what are, what are the two top priorities that I need to focus on this week? Is it that actually this is a low period during work and I, I need to work on some development, I've got some time to work on some things there? Or is it that you have a, a report that's pressing, a meeting, a presentation, a proposal, whatever it is that needs to get done. This is for work, for uni, whatever it is. And then put those, the, the main things, the most time critical things in place. And then pray over it. Just do that for an hour and see if that doesn't change the way you do the week. The reason, the reason that this is helpful is that we go from just reacting to stimuli and deadlines and red lights to actually thinking about the week with God first in mind and then going at it. And it's not perfect. Things are difficult. Work is hard, right? Work is frustrating. There's no perfect plan. But it may help us go from just responding to actually planning and going forward. And the second one would be this. In terms of if you just need to manage your time better, Maybe just try and create clear lines between work and rest. You know what we do nowadays, because you can always be at work and whatever and always connected to people, is we try and rest while we should be working and then try and work while we should be resting. I like to call it work-laxing. And it's when we do things like you get home and you realize, ah, I've still got some work to do. I'm meant to do those reports. I really want to switch off. I'll bring them together. And then what happens is you like do your reports while you're trying to watch Netflix or something like that and end up just hating yourself and you're in a mess and everything takes longer and whatever. It's work laxing. It's a disaster. I would encourage you as much as possible, one of the hardest things to do in a modern era of work is to create clear boundaries between rest and work. So if you get home and you realize you've forgotten something, just say to myself, I'm going to give it one hour, I'm going to smash it out, I'll get it done, and then I will switch off and not to merge the two, to try and create clear boundaries. If you've got work that blows out all the time, try and set limits on where it is that you're going to work and where you're not, and try not to confuse them. And to help with that, the third thing is, try to create a routine. One of the hardest things about kind of uni life is that everything is just everywhere, isn't it? The timetable changes every semester. There's no rhythm to things. You've got to fit part-time work in and around and in between lectures or at lectures or whatever's going on. It's just chaos. One of the things that I found so refreshing going from like uni to full-time work was just like, it's just the same every week, right? I know when it happens, it's the same all the time. And the reason that's helpful is that as humans, our capacities are limited and our capacities for making decisions are limited. And the more decisions you have to make in the week, the tighter you're going to get. And so when you have, you've heard the, the, the phrase habits make good bandages or routines make good bandages, there's something helpful about just doing the same thing at the same time every week. So I'd encourage you, create a routine for your week. If you have, I don't know, however many subjects or whatever work areas, try and work on the same thing at the same point each week. Set out a block of time where you're like, I work on it there. It helps you not to think about it all the time because you know I'm going to get to it at that point in my week. From 10 till 2 on a Tuesday, I work on this subject. From you know, uh, 9 to 11 on Wednesdays, I work on this proposal. Whatever it is, as much as you can, and your timetable might not be up to you, but to create a routine. It helps you to switch off. If you've got multiple inboxes, people are messaging through Instagram, Facebook, you've got text messages, emails, carrier pigeon, it's just hitting you from all sides. 
One of the most helpful things you can do, and depending on your schedule, is to create times when you zero your inboxes. Maybe you say from 8.30 till 9 in the morning, I zero all my inboxes, and then I do it again in the afternoon, and that's it. Because then when you get one at 8.30 at night, you can be like, don't worry about it, I'll get to it tomorrow. Just whatever it is to create some kind of routine to your week so that you're not constantly just in between things as much as you possibly can. Now that might be what's, what's causing you to overwork. You may just need to manage your time better. But number two is you might need a different job. You might need a different degree. God has made you, in his image, unique. And he's given you unique abilities and gifts. And he's given you unique capacities. And if your ability and your capacity are not a match for your degree or your job, you'll constantly be redlining. And it's worth asking, if you are overworking, are you gifted for your job in terms of ability? Is it a natural fit for you? Are you gifted for your work in terms of capacity? I had a friend who was really bright, got a, a top ATAR, but for whatever reason, she had decided that, um, that she really needed to be a doctor. She came from a high-achieving family, and she felt like being, being a doctor of medicine was kind of the only thing that really mattered or would be significant. And so she put everything into trying to get into medicine. And even though she was super bright, it just wasn't a match for her abilities. And it pushed her to the absolute limits just to keep her head above water in a degree where other people were kind of, you know, some of them were gifted for it and were just coasting through. Others were working a bit. She was struggling the whole way. And the reason for it was she believed that in order to be a somebody, she needed to be a doctor, and it was just out of line. If you understand that your identity is in Jesus, you may be able to get to the point where you're like, you know what? This job just isn't for me. I stepped up to management, and you know what? I'm just, I actually don't enjoy it. I'm a practitioner. I just want to get amongst that. You, you might find that your job has changed, or you took a raise, or whatever it was. If your identity is in Jesus, you can be like, you know what? This is causing me to to push everything to the margins. This is too much. I don't need to do this. You may need a new job. And it may be the case that actually your abilities are a good fit and your capacity is a good fit. Your workplace is toxic. That actually people are mean, cruel. It might just be outright sinful and that you can't be a part of that workplace without being caught up in it. There's no way to not participate in it and you might just need to leave that and get a new job. The third one is this you definitely need to prioritize your relationship with Jesus. The thing that comes first is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if your job is competing for that, then it's out of order. Not only that, but we tend to make bad decisions when our relationship with God is out of sync. We forget 2 Corinthians 5, where we are called as ambassadors. We're here to represent Jesus to the world. And so often, I see Christians who in the workplace, it's like they forgot they were ever saved. At church or in, or in missional community and small groups, they are on and get to work and it's like you leave your Christian hat at the door. It's not the case. We are called to be one person. You're an ambassador for God. And if we forget that, everything will fall out of order. We had a, a youth leader years ago who was an actual grown-up. But when it came to playing, <laughs> you see where I'm going with this, when it came to playing games with the youth, forgot that he was a grown-up and a leader and, and got way too competitive and way too involved to the point where kids were scared. They were scared to play the games. 
He just lost his head. As soon as he got in the game, he just got so competitive. He, lost, he spear tackled a kid one time during a game of bulldog, like British Bulldog or whatever. Like, just, you know, just have a panadol and a lie down. Let's just calm this down. Now, it's fun, you can see that and think that's a funny image to get in your head of a grown-up going hard playing a game against kids. But it's the same. Christians, you are called as followers of Jesus to be ambassadors for Jesus in the workplace. And sometimes we forget it and just get caught up in the rhythm of work and work just the same as everyone around us. Make decisions the same way. That's not what you're called to do if you're a follower of Jesus. John Wesley says, in light of the gospel, do all the good you can by all the means you can and all the ways you can and all the places you can and all the times you can to all the people you can as long as you ever can. We're called to represent Jesus in all and every context. One of the reasons work can be so unrestful is because we lose sight of who we are in Jesus and of the biblical understanding of work. Let's pray that God would help us to put things in place that he might be honored in the way that we work and rest. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are the God of work and rest, that you have created in your universe a pattern for work and rest that is for human flourishing. And Father, we pray that you would help us to be a part of this and to contribute helpfully for your glory. We pray that if we are overworking, that we would repent of this and that we would pull things back into a right and biblical rhythm. We pray that you would help us to rest, that we might have time to grow in our love for you and to love our neighbor. And Father, we pray that as we do this, that you would strengthen us to be witnesses for you in the world and that all of this would be for your glory and your glory alone. Amen.